Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White, as always. We are in early to mid-December. We know it's been a while. Uh, we've been through one set of holidays. Another set of holidays is coming down the pike. You know, it's that time of year where you're supposed to be jolly and full of goodwill towards men and peace to all and all that stuff. And naturally, Mickey has been spending her time with the usual serial killers and dark supernatural things and <laughs> terrible child deaths and all that stuff. So we're warned. There's a lot of heavy stuff in the front end of this uh, of this podcast. Little- I was going to say, maybe we should warn our listeners a little bit this week. Mickey's been doing some of the dark side. Your warning, yes. Yeah, uh, no, uh, yeah. This is if good. you ha- if you're sensitive, you probably shouldn't be listening to our podcast anyway. Um, Step ahead a bit, and uh, you know, when, yes. When you hear but, us talk about killers and and you know Rudolph and stuff, and you know it's happy. Yeah, yes, of course. You know, look, here's the thing, Jim. We live in a brutal world, right? And as I've been telling our listeners for a while now, true crime is having a moment, and I am obsessed with podcasts. Mm -hmm. I literally cannot get enough, as you well know. And so I've been getting into that. So I'm going to talk about one of those in a little bit. I'm going to talk about um, some Netflix shows that I've been watching, some Prime shows that I've been watching. And I want to ask you, though, because Netflix just killed it the other night uh, as far as the nominations for Golden Globes. And one of the films that came up was the, of course, the much talked about The Irishman. And it's my understanding that Robert De Niro got snubbed for best actor in a drama. And that that was a big deal to people. Mm. Now, Mickey, is it possible that he was overlooked because they just were literally looking over him because he wasn't wearing his lips? Okay, first of all, can we discuss that that's still my favorite picture, maybe of all time of him? Because they were like six-foot lifts, right? Six-inch lifts. Like they were, you know. And it is my understanding that part of that was based on the fact that he is playing a character who was known for being very tall. Okay. And was a big person. Um, So I don't know if the lifts were specific to this role, but I like to believe personally they were not. Mm. And that he wears them all the time whenever he's filming because he is a very tiny little person. That Robert De Niro is actually four feet, 11 inches tall. uh, (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, Yes. So here, so so have you watched it yet? I did. I can. Okay. What did you think? Well, first of all, I want to tell our listeners this up front. Know that there's a couple things you need to know going into it. One, it is three and a half hours long. Mm. So when you decide to watch this, I will give you a tip up front we decided that we wanted to watch this about three days before we actually did because we then planned around it and actually sat down to watch a movie at like seven o'clock so that i think it was a friday night it was like seven o'clock so that we could actually one both stay awake for the entire movie and watch it in one sitting I've talked to several people who have had to like break it up because they started too late and you know, they just can't stay up for the three and a half hours or one falls asleep and one says, you need to plan it out. And it's definitely worth it. I say this as someone who I can be very critical of Martin Scorsese's movies primarily because he usually needs more editing and everything that he does. And in this case, yes, there are definitely spots where he could have, you know, taken some time out. However, I will tell you that the reason the movie is so long is that because it covers several decades. So mm-hmm. it does not feel like it's slow moving outside of the beginning when you're kind of getting to know the characters and things. So you, what you described, Mickey, is very much what's going on in the Garrity household right now. 
in that Mrs. Campaign Spot and I both are kind of at minimum intrigued by this movie. We've heard all the, heard all the good things. It just seems like this classic formula, the story of Hoffa and the mob, Scorsese. You know, it's the all it's the Scorsese all-star team, right? Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah, you've yeah. got Joe Pesci in this. Um, and you've got and, and it's funny, actually interesting, because he's kind of like the um upper upper level mafiosa in this one. And uh and De Niro's kinda underneath him, which is, you know, an interesting flip twist. And and then of course you've got Pacino playing actual Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that it's called the Irishman, obviously, because look at who's playing everything. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm just saying. nobody in it is Irish. It appears. Uh-uh. No, I didn't, couldn't find one. Um, there are some really fascinating stories, some of which have been verified. But this is primarily based on the deathbed confession of a known mafia hitman. Mm hmm. And so there's, you know, some people believe it to be true. Like some people believe like this is what actually happened to Jimmy Hoffa. And some people believe that this was just, you know, the ramblings of a man who wanted to take credit for something. So going into it, you know, it's good to know that these are based on real people, but, you know, be open to interpretation. Yeah. And I guess the thing, so we have not watched it yet and there've been certain, it came out like right around Thanksgiving. So we've had Mm -hmm. some time. And we've just not quite, we, we just kind of, the, the running time, I think, is intimidating, as you noted. Like that sense of like, how often do you have three and a half hours to set aside for a movie? Again, we had to plan it. Like, yeah, and, you know, and the, yeah. I suggest to, that you plan it like you're going out to a movie. Like, Friday yeah, night, we're going then, to go most, see Blah, only you have to do it in your living room. Most movies are in like that two hour range. So this is nearly double that amount of time. Uh, I guess the good news with Netflix, you can hit pause and make a po- take a potty break if you need it or something. Um, but it's just one of those things where we know it's good. Uh, you know, we'll get the kids in bed. It's around nine o'clock in the evening. We usually turn in around eleven or so. You know, maybe we could do it on a Friday night and stay up. Like it's just one of the, it's just such a commitment. You know? and it that, really that, is. It you know. really is a commitment. And this is a conversation I'm gonna have with my friends as well. And it's hilarious because one of my friends called it a four night movie. For them, because what, she fell asleep the first night, he fell asleep the second night. They were going to try again when I had talked to her to get through it all together, but she was convinced that they were probably going to have to break it up into two parts. Right. I mean, it, it's one of those things that when you've got three and a half hours of material, you know, you're talking almost miniseries, right? Like, you oh, know, yeah. You know, and, and maybe it might have, have worked better on that. And, you know, look, I mean, you know, maybe that's, by the way, that also may, I wonder if that's part of why the binge-worthy limited series or miniseries is, is become um, such a, a, you know, a uh, prevalent form of entertainment in, in, in the, the media It's the eight-hour movie. Because, you know, one, you don't have to watch it all at once and you can take your time and you can, you know, it, it's, it's bite-sized, right? If you want to mm-hmm. go into that next episode, you can, you want to pause, you pause. Um, I, I intend to watch it. And like I said, I'm, I'm hearing good things about it, but I, okay. Also when Scorsese said, you know, the Marvel movies aren't really cinema and all that stuff. Did any of that stuff he, great on you? Well, okay. First of all, no, because I'm not you. However, okay. <laughs> he, says a, he says a lot of things that annoy me. Like, again, I am often separating the artists from their art. Mm-hmm. And I tend to, as you know, do it almost flawlessly. Like I don't even hear some of the things that come out. Um, but what I would say in this respect is that I felt like he was being very disrespectful to the other directors who had, um, created those films. And I really did feel like 
it was very much a pot shot from, you know, here's an old guy who, I mean, legitimately made his living off of, and his, his entire career and name is off of mob families. Mm-hmm. Now, explain to me how that enhances our culture any more or less than a Marvel character. Right. There's always been a Pulp Fiction, and I don't mean in the Tarantino sense, to all mm-hmm. of these mobster films of, you know, blood and violence and mm-hmm. sometimes sex and all that kind of stuff. So less than so there were two observations i had because i i got into this with my uh, couple of my colleagues at national review none of them saw it my way so they're all wrong shocking um, but my my gist was was you know i realize i am not on the one hand i am not hollywood's target demographic for a lot of these films on the other hand suburban dad i do have i say in other words like dis- disposable time is a bigger concern for me than disposable income right I've got, I can afford going to the movies, although they are starting to get pricey. It's the committing to go out to watch the movies. You know, I don't want, I don't want to go out and spend an evening out and, you know, on, on a Friday night or a Saturday night, you get a babysitter if we're not seeing a family-friendly film and not enjoy the movie, right? That's the, so the it's cooking. too much of a risk, yes. Yeah, right? I mean, I want to know that this is going to be a good time. And for everyone who doesn't you know, you know, people, oh, the Marvel movies are predictable. You know, the hero is going to win. First of all, that's true for almost every film in every genre, right? Like, you don't go to watch romantic comedies where they don't get together at the end, you know? Right. And, and for those of us who sat through the breakup. Um, there you go. Yeah. That was one of the most painful romantic comedies that did not end correctly. Yeah. Spoiler alert, the Titanic sinks, you know, like there are a lot of right. films. Yes. You kind of know how it's going to end. <laughs> You watch it because you want to know how things work out, right? Almost every high, very few heist movies end with the gang getting arrested, caught, arrested, and sent off to jail. It's generally okay. How do they, you know, deal with it when? How, how does mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven deal with it when the security guard walks to the left instead of the right, and they have to improvise or all that kind of stuff? Um, so there's a part of me that's like, you know, the Marvel movies have a really good rate of very. I'm trying to think if there are any of them you'd say are really bad. Right. And there's some people who say, you know, Thor 2 is kind of, eh, you know. No, I like Thor 2. I think that you run into problems with Avengers Age of Ultron was no good. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of Winter Soldier. Um, I think I fell asleep in that one like three times (laughs) trying to get through it. But yeah, Marvel has built a brand where you pretty much know what you're going to get. Yeah, the, you know, people, oh, there are too many quips and all that stuff. Hey, the quips are what make it fun, right? That's you know, why we like it. Right. So, you know, there's this, so what, what he's kind of groaning about this stuff, uh, you know, one, you make three and a half hour movies. I'm not sure how often in my life I have three and a half hours to put everything else, kids aside, work aside, uh, everything that's got to be done around the house, all that kind of, you know, like direct, you know, dear, dear Hollywood, you're asking for a fairly significant chunk of my time. You better, you know, reward me for committing to, to watch this. Uh, and if you want, if you do want me to go to the theaters, as he, because he was very upset that people might be watching The Irishman on their phones. Guess what, Martin Scorsese? People are watching The Irishman on their phones. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, well, here, here's the biggest problem with Martin Scorsese. I think that he is an old man mm-hmm. trying to maintain relevance. And he's still very talented. Don't get me wrong. This movie is very well done. But mm-hmm. I think it's significant to note that this movie, much like many of his movies are set in the seventies and sixties. Mm-hmm. Yep. The prime of his life. Yep. And I feel like he sees that as being like, you know, the okay boomer. He's that I, guy. I was just about to say, Mickey, can you summarize your response to Martin Scorsese as okay boomer? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I like- mean, I just feel like he's he's it doesn't make sense because of course he ultimately did put his film on Netflix. 
And... Yeah, and I don't know, you know, that's him trying to make his peace with the current era. And obviously my, my sense is that um, a, a big theme of the Irishman is the sense of the, the ending of an era. Um, and what happens when you are on the, the downslope of life and, and nearing the end and kind of wondering what you've done with your life and how it feels when you know, the world moves on without you. But there's, there's, you know, there's great dramatic material there. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the theme of that movie. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, you've mm-hmm. seen it. I haven't, so I will. Correct. I will. Yes. And I think that you'll be surprised by what ends up being a lot more cohesive threads than that particular message. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because people had wondered, like, you know, the idea of, you know, people are saying that the, uh, uh, the CGI of a younger De Niro and Pacino and all that stuff doesn't work as well as they, they thought it would. Like, the, 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 not being able to look younger, boy, there's a metaphor, right? Right. <laughs> I think that it, I, I, you know, look, it, it works. It doesn't work as good as it did on Will Smith because he's not 107. Um, <laughs> but it, again, you know, you have, there's a certain amount of suspension of disbelief to believe that Robert De Niro is playing, you know, a 30 year old. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, but you know where they're going with this story. So it also makes it something that's a little bit more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like the story is very interesting, uh, especially if you're like me where I've, you know. I, I love mob stories. I love all the mafia things. I'm mocking a lot of his movies that I also love. Um, but the thing about it is, is like, I didn't really know that much about Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. I mean, you know, we've all heard that he's under a giant stadium. Mm-hmm. We've heard, you know, all of these stories for years about this man who just disappeared. And it, it, it fell into that, what I like to think of as the magical time before the the behavioral science unit, um, the BAU, <laughs> was created and before we had DNA. And so everything was still magical and mystical. It was almost like the whole world was run by little fairies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this is a case that probably would have been solved um, had it happened today. I don't know that it's nearly as big of a mystery as people like it to be, but I think that it also people, like I said, some people are going to watch this movie and say, like, oh, this is what happened. Some people are going to watch this movie and say, nope, that's not it. So I was going to say it is, uh, you know, uh, first of all, your classic urban legend, like probably one of the most famous urban legends. Mm-hmm. Um, but also one, if you're right, you know, the idea that something involving the mob uh, and, and who he was, you know, the enemies he was making had something to do with it. Um, you, you know, there, there isn't, you know, that, that kind of, you know, like the, the obvious, the other thing I kind of wonder is if the locations were just like, you know, he's in, he's under cement in some warehouse somewhere. Would that make a lot of get a lot of headlines? Eh, maybe, maybe not. He's under the end zone at Giant Stadium. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you know, <laughs> right? There, oh God, it was only you know, it probably was less than ten years ago. They were digging up some barn out in the middle of like nowhere, so yeah. And they're like, oh, we heard that Jimmy Hoffa's body might be buried under this barn. I'm like, what? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely been like a, a a true life urban legend. A lot of people have lived it. I think this movie provides a more realistic possible ending to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I choose to believe it. I choose to believe that this is probably what happened to him. Um, and that's based on some other research that I've done as well outside of the movie. But it, the movie does cover some things that I think, you know, I think they took some creative licensing, definitely. But I think they do an interesting job of telling the story. And what's interesting is that they start at the very beginning of Hoffa's career. And most people only know him from the, you know, end of his career, really. 
And I think by seeing the beginning of the career and how it all built up, like that you see in reference, it's like actual storyline involving the Kennedys and, mm-hmm. you know, and their interactions with them and Joe Kennedy specifically. And so, like, you know, like I said, very interesting. Yeah, there, there is very much, you know, while we're saying, OK, boomer, like there, there is very much a romanticized ideal of how, let's say, the 50s into the 60s into the early 70s uh, mm-hmm. were. And in fact, there was, you know, all kinds of uh, less savory aspects, particularly if you've studied the Kennedys, mm-hmm. um, that generally get left out of that Camelot uh, portrait and all that stuff. So yes. it's definitely, yeah, um, like I said, it's definitely an interesting take, um, interesting angle. It's worth it, but I totally understand why people might want to break it in half. Yeah. So here's a big, you know, um, now that we have uh, torn Martin Scorsese to shreds, mm-hmm. uh, does it leave you brokenhearted, Mickey? How's that for a sec? How's that for a sec? Oh, you're the worst. Um, first of all, let me just say, no, it did not leave me brokenhearted. I was not at all upset by the ending. I thought it was fine. And I think that I will look forward to hearing what you have to say about it and what our listeners have to say about it. Now, here's the part where I'm going to warn our listeners for real. We're going to talk about a podcast and a true crime story that I have been following and now suddenly doing much more research than I'd ever planned on because I got sucked into it. Um, and it does involve a lot of um, violence and specifically against children. So I just want to give you guys the heads up on that. Um, but the story that I'm talking about is specifically related to a podcast called Broken Hearts. And Hearts is spelled H-A-R-T-S. And that is because that is the last name of Jennifer and Sarah Hart. A couple, lesbian couple, just for clarification, that a um, couple of women who are married and they had adopted two different sets of three siblings. So they had six children in total that they had adopted. They were all black children that had um, been taken out of the foster care system. And in March of 2018, Jennifer drove them in a Tahoe off a cliff in California and killed all of them. You know, when you told me this story, Mickey, right before, you know, the, shortly before we started taping, I marveled at the fact that I had not heard of this because it, you know, when people, people still talk about Susan Smith uh, driving her car into the lake right? and killing her children. This is the sort of thing that ordinarily would be, you know, never mind tabloid news story. It would be, be the sort of thing you'd get. Um, it would just turn into a, a you know, uh, the, you know, those, those girls who are abducted and found somewhere in Ohio um, the, oh, the, absolutely. The kidnapped girls. The movie so this, of the this week is the, you know, this. this is baby Jessica down the well kind of mm-hmm. you know women uh, uh, you know uh, uh, children in trouble story, and it didn't break through at all. And Mm-mm. there's some there's some interesting implications of how little attention it received. Well, and getting right into this. So here's the thing: I had heard the story, right? I had read about it. It was one of the things I'd seen some information on it, but I didn't know a whole lot. I knew before I started the podcast that it was had been ruled that it was a murder suicide. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that was about all I really knew about the family. And then I ended up starting to listen to the podcast and realized that one of the reasons they started the podcast was to try to keep the story in the news because they felt like it didn't get much coverage. And it's one of the things that this particular podcast does very, very well in taking several different angles at the story. One, telling the timeline of events and the history of those that were involved, but also giving some really good societal insight 
on things that are happening around us and things that happened in their environment that allowed them to get to this point and things that, you know, we should all kind of be aware of. And those things involve things such as things we talk about on the show all the time, social media, Mm -hmm. um, PC culture. And there was, here's the thing. I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of background on the kids. Mm -hmm. They actually, at one point, um, went viral twice. The entire family. How many times does that happen? Like one person goes viral. That's a once in a lifetime thing, right? Mm -hmm. This family went viral twice. And I'm going to tell you about the two stories. One was when Devante, one of the, I think he was the second to the oldest boys, was at a Black Black Lives Matter rally. Um, in, I believe it was in Portland or Seattle and he hugged a cop and he was hugging the cop and there are tears streaming down his face. And that photo went viral. And at that time, apparently they were approached by several people, outlets, reality TV shows, according to Jennifer saying that they wanted to have national interviews with them and talk to them and whatnot. And she said she would not have her children exposed to that. So of course, all of her friends are like, what a great mom. You know, Mm -hmm. she's, she's protecting your kids from all of the media spotlight. That's fantastic. And then they also ended up, um, you may remember this. There was a time during the 2016 presidential campaign when Bernie Sanders, I believe was in Seattle, was giving a speech and a bird came and landed on the podium. Mm Mm-hmm. Directly behind Bernie Sanders at that moment is the entire Hart family or the Hart tribe, as they referred to themselves and, and as their friends referred to them. They were there wearing their homemade Bernie T-shirts and waving signs right behind him. Weird, right? I was going to say, you know, one, you know I, I'm sure a chunk of our listeners are looking at this and saying, oh, now I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. The, mm-hmm. This was this was a uh, the two mothers were very politically active, mm-hmm. very outspoken about their politics. Yes, and you know this is almost like the the double axle triple lux of interacting with social media, where you get attention for something involving your children. Correct. And you announce that you will not have your children doing interviews because you don't want them being exploited by social media. So you simultaneously get the attention to social media and you get credit by being the kind of person who has no time to, you know, who, whose primary you know, focus is making sure your kids are OK and not wanting to see them get exploited by social media. Um, Correct. Yeah, and you're, you're following oh, right down the my... rabbit hole. Here we go. So in addition to these exposures that we know of. Devante became kind of famous at festivals and local areas because they went to a lot of these music festivals and these, um, I don't even, they called them trans something, something, something things. Um, but apparently it's an event where people are encouraged to come and quote, be themselves, whatever that may be type thing. And he was known for walking around with a free hug sign. Now among this little hippie culture, and I would call it, not, you know, like it's the modern day hippie culture. I don't yeah. know what they call themselves now. Um, you know, everyone just thought this child was so sweet and he was representative of a new transracial society and how everyone was so accepting because here's, you know, two white lesbians raising six black poor kids that were, according to their mothers, developmentally disabled and very small because of the problems that they'd had because they were crack babies. Mm-hmm. Now... Never mind that we find out much, much later that none of that is true about their background, their history. They weren't crack babies. They 
um, they were being starved to death by their mothers. Now, first of all, as a mom of sorts, I will say this. When I heard about the first, the free hug sign, I wasn't impressed. Jim, would you let your kid run around with a free hug sign at some festival with a bunch of people that are high and drunk? No. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I don't want my, you say, oh, I don't want my children to be exploited by social media. Okay. Um, You want to perhaps have a, 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 you know, certain respectful wariness of your children interacting with strangers uh, until they're old enough to take care of themselves. We live in a world with people who are, uh, not always nice, not always have the best intentions towards children involved. And, you know, in a situation where a lot of people are drunk or on drugs, it seems like the likelihood of something going terribly wrong is perhaps a little bit higher there. Right. Um, you know, and again, I'm not sure why any adult thought it was cute, but apparently some people did this. I, this was not even touched on by the way, in the podcast in which I listened to, they just blew through the free hugs. Like it was normal. Meanwhile, I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. So We'll start there with that. There was the, the free hugs. Now, understand that Jennifer Hart was kind of the the force, the patriarchal um, force of the the Hart tribe, as they like to be called. And she was active on social media, specifically Facebook. She made posts, multiple posts, sometimes in a day. All of these posts were lengthy. They often included pictures of her children and always included some type of societal message of Black Lives Matter, um, Children's Lives Matter. She talked about how she had been oppressed for being a lesbian and how her family had abandoned her for that and how racist people had been towards her and her children as when they were out in public. And basically, she was kind of always the victim slash martyr, regardless of the situation. She found a way to position it so that while she was a victim, she still was strong. Mm. And people really respected these women. Um, Look, when the, the idea happened, that there's a the idea that there's a template in society, and that mm-hmm. they managed to live up to that portrait of what people wanted to see. In every little detail. And of course, mm-hmm. social media, you know, is think of it as a camera with a very small aperture. Am I using the phrase mm-hmm. correct? You know, like you don't see what's off screen. And mm-hmm. they managed to project exactly the image that they wanted to project that would get a very specific and generally widely supportive reaction from that online social audience. Mm-hmm. An online social audience, as you noted, Mickey, does not actually know them in, in real life, in, interact mm-hmm. with them in person. Correct. Yeah. Yes, they only they only know what they've been presented. And so she had a very active social media following. She seemingly felt more comfortable interacting with people through a screen because she also had an online gaming, what sounds like an addiction to me, um, that she played. They're, they're suggesting that she played online gaming somewhere between 15 and 20 hours a day. So her wife worked all the time and then would come home from work and take care of the children. At some point, it became pretty clear that Jennifer was the one in charge just because of things we've heard now from witnesses, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter, Jim, is these women had initially been accused of child abuse before they even adopted the second set of siblings. And what you begin to realize is that, as I said earlier, the PC culture part of it, they used that as a shield 
Mm-hmm. Because anytime that anyone, whether it be a neighbor or a friend or a teacher or anyone approached them, you talk about the norms of society and the landscape that we have and the images that we draw. This is it right here in a nutshell, because these women worked within those parameters to con everybody and to ruin those poor children mm-hmm. and ultimately kill them. But they use the fact that if they were approached by anyone, they would say that someone was being homophobic, someone was being racist, they didn't appreciate their transracial family, mm-hmm. which apparently I, I did not. Transracial is a relatively new phrase um, that I've heard. So if you're not familiar with it, that's okay. Does, it's, is that what they're now calling interracial adoption? Yes. What okay. we used to call interracial adoption, they're now calling it transracial. Say there was a time that was considered very controversial. I guess, and you know, if you ask uh, my mm-hmm. former colleague David French, uh, there are still some people that say no, you shouldn't be all that kind of stuff. But I guess, look, look, this was for whether you want to call it PC culture, the left. It, look, there are a lot of people who wanted to believe this, and I have no doubt. Yes, that in this world yes, there are, are a lot of people who wanted to believe this because this is what people write. This is, isn't this the utopian family? Well. Uh, first of for all, those who want yeah. to see certain things. And like, yeah. this is how they were able to use and abuse the system and those children by taking advantage of it. And it's interesting now because there are a lot of um, former adoptees that are black that were adopted into white families that have similar stories that have come forward um, with families specifically in like the 70s and 80s where they were hippies that wanted to have these children and use them basically as props. Yeah. I mean, first of all, and I mean, you got to take a real hard look at society when things like this are starting to happen. And you realize one, this is happening on the regular. And two, something about this specifically reminded me of the Turpin 13. Mm-hmm. Those were the, the family in California where they had the 13 children and they moved from state to state because here's the thing. There is no national database for child abuse, not for allegations, accusations, nothing. And so basically, if you've been accused in one state, if you pick up and move, those don't really follow you. That, you know. And so one of the things that some of these these activists are now pushing for, because these children were moved through six states. This went over a period of 10 years that they were physically abused, that they had been reported to CPS, and then they would pick up and take off. And then they'd be reported and they'd pick up and take off. And I mean, they just repeatedly did this. And at one point, um, they were taking in money for these children um, from the state of Texas. And it it totaled somewhere close to $300,000 that they had taken from the state of Texas because they adopted these children. That was money that was given to them, you know, in stipends, monthly, et cetera, over the time period. If you look at that, first of all, I am sure... That you know, probably every gay parent in the country has experienced some moment of disapproval, statements, maybe even assault. You know, you never know. Like, I, so on the one hand, you know, does this sort of thing happen? Yes, of course. The idea that you'd be able to use that to divert worries about child abuse, right? You know, this is the mm-hmm. weaponization of of these sorts of controversies. Um, and the idea, I know, I, I you know, uh, David French, my former colleague, had written about getting all kinds of horrible racist messages when he, you know, uh, wrote about his uh, adoption of a child from Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure these, you know, th- these women may very well have experienced all kinds of, of negative comments. And that's awful. But 
when you know that should not always say, oh well, we can't investigate for you know these allegations. Child mm-hmm. abuse. Right? This should not be a get out of investigations free card. And this mm-hmm. question, fair question of people going to ask, why didn't anybody do anything leading up to the the uh, god awful you know demise of these children? Well, you know the, the question. These they tried. A community behind them. Interesting is the community that didn't know them. The online community mm-hmm. of people who saw this image and who I guess that's the thing they wanted to believe. And, and yes. I don't, you know, like there are probably a whole bunch of well, there might be some people who are like you know, well, that's that's wrong. I'm like no, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with wanting to believe. You know, in the story of adoptive parents, there's not enough adoption in this world. You know, there's right. Well, one of the things that they specifically talk about is that adoptive parents, in general, like when they've done studies, that the term adoptive parent Mm -hmm. brings forth nothing but positive. As far as imagery, people think love and home and safety and you know, Mm -hmm. etc. There's different reaction to foster care and a huge reaction to a parent that has lost their rights. Because they think of that person as being a horrible person, a monster, or whatever, when in reality, like, th- this this case is a hard, hard look at the adoption process. This is a hard, hard look at how we see people. Like I said, there's so many facets to it. Because she did have this online life on Facebook where she was constantly posting these positive reinforcement type messages and pictures where she clearly had posed the children for the very specific photo that she wanted. Um and what was interesting is that in this particular podcast, they went back and talked to some of their friends who had initially defended the, the mothers um, and initially thought there was no way that this had happened on purpose, but they didn't know. They didn't really know them because they didn't know anything about any of the allegations of child abuse or the, the fact that they were starving the children or anything else. And ultimately, you know, they look back on it now and... They had been told that the children were skinny because they were on organic and vegan diets. <laughs> By the way, is that a is that a get out of free tell, get out of jail free card if your children are skinny and <laughs> looking? Well, this no. is what I'm saying. Like the, yeah. every I, I they had an that. answer oh, you're for saying everything. my organic food isn't good enough for my kids. You want me to put right. you know, yes, and that, and that was the whole story. With like, but they always had an answer for everything, and because they operated in that circle specifically of people who pride themselves on being open-minded and on being, you know, accepting of everything. They never wanted to appear like they were being judgmental. Mm -hmm. And definitely these women took advantage of that. I mean, there's no question because again, some of these people now and looking back on it, they're, they're devastated because they feel like it was so easy for them to look past what should have been obvious red flags. Because they were so enamored with the idea and with, apparently Jen had a big personality and, you know, was, and when she was on, she was really on. I mean, look, um, generally, nobody wants to believe the, you know, that something, you know, like, we, we, we'd all like prefer to live in a world where child abuse didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right? We'd all like to, you know, and, and unfortunately we don't. And we all know, like, that's a, that's probably the, the biggest accusation you can make of somebody, Right. Oh, yeah. And once that accusation is out there, you, you can't put that genie back in the bottle, right? You can mm-hmm. destroy somebody's reputation if you make a false or, or inaccurate, if you misinterpret a bruise, uh, you know, all kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. every parent, you know, has that terrible fear of, oh, God, what if my child does something and somebody at school, you know, thinks that the bruise is caused by me or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Mickey, since this podcast started, has any other media kind of picked up this thread and kind of said, hey, what went on here? And is there anything of note? And, you know, no. In fact, this podcast is actually a year old. Oh, wow. I stumbled across it 
Um, because I was just, I, you know, as again, I've mentioned I'm obsessed. And I had been looking through some of the higher rated podcasts that were in the true crime. And I was like, I literally opened up in my, I looked at it probably three or four times. You talk about hesitancy. Um, before I decided to listen to it because my thought process was like, what am I going to learn from this podcast that I don't already know about the situation? Mm-hmm. Um, it made me look yep. at things very, very differently. If Dateline did a primetime special on this or one of their, you know, because you, know, the, 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 you see these sorts of things all the time, of, you know, on, on a lot of, you know, network primetime television. Mm-hmm. How do you think people would react? Like, would people, you know, like, would well, there be some people who, even in this circumstance, would say this is gay bashing or this is demonizing adoptive parents? Well, or... let me put it to you this way: Why yeah. hasn't there been a Dateline 2020 48 Hours Lifetime yeah. movie about this? Why? Why yeah. is this I a mean, story that the media doesn't want to cover? Well, yeah. <laughs> it it, it kind of answers itself, doesn't it? Right? You know, I like just you, don't feel like I need to answer that. I feel like it's right there for of you. Straight white male serial killers out there that mm-hmm. you can report on, and there is no. Uh, and yet, white there are so many lessons to be learned from this horrific tragedy. Um, and it, it's important to note that the findings were that both women did plan this both women knew what was going to happen it happened they planned it within a 24-hour period but they both did know what was happening um they drugged the children with uh, an off-brand antihistamine um and so the likelihood is that the children and probably sarah the mother i have you haven't heard me talk very much about um that she was drugged as well, but she clearly was involved because she had been doing the Googling about how they were going to drug themselves and their children. Um, Jen, who did not drink, is my understanding, had an alcohol level of like 0.10 or something like that, whatever the legal limit is. It was like twice the legal limit, and she wasn't a drinker, so they said she would have been primarily almost incapacitated when this happened. So a lot of people believe she maybe, you know, did that in order to get the courage up to drive off the cliff or what have you. Um, for a while, there were three children that were not found on the initial crash date. And so there was some speculation about what had happened to those children, uh, two of which have been found. The only one who has never been found is Devante. And while he has been declared dead and most believe that he did die in the crash, there are many who, again, speculate and I think secretly hope that Maybe he did somehow survive all of this and get away get away from them, but um, it seems unlikely at this point. I would say, and someone wondering, you know, what would, you know, on the one hand, you could completely understand why a child would want to leave all that behind. On the other hand, the odds of that, yeah, uh, not looking great. Mickey, this is a really dark segment. <laughs> <laughs> you ready to go darker? Hey, what's going on with with Hellier? Uh, Hellier. Hellier, Jim. Hellier. All right, people. This is it. This people is think the I things... have some sort of accent. Hellier. Hellier. No, we are going to talk about Hellier. Hellier is a prime series. It is about paranormal activity, and I'm going to explain it to you the way it was explained to me the first time. Uh, there are currently two seasons of it. It is a paranormal investigative group that is going out to the hills of Kentucky, and specifically Hellier, Kentucky. That's the name of the town. Hellier, Kentucky, to investigate the Kentucky Goblins. Now, now the Kentucky the, Goblins were not an expansion franchise. <laughs> but they should be. Oh. So, <clears throat> and I'm very much team Kentucky Goblin. But anyway, neither here nor there. They go out 
to in search of Kentucky goblins. And it is my understanding they uncover an entire world of paranormal activity within the Appalachian Mountains. And so, of course, Jim, I when Hellier 2 came out, it was all over my feed. Like, I follow a lot of paranormal activity, much just like I do a true crime. I'm into ghosts and stuff. Like, so, of course, I'm going to read on ghost stories and things of that nature and see if it's interesting. Well, people are just blowing up my feed about how good this was. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, all right, you win. I'll watch it. And so I have. I have watched it for you people. You people who listen to my show and you people who get in my Twitter feed and you people who put hashtag hellier on everything. Um, I watched this for you and you told me that it was the best paranormal show that had ever been on ever on any show ever really is what I'd heard. Jimmy, I, I sent you actually one of the reviews because I wanted you to have a full gripping understanding mm-hmm. of how well received this has been in the paranormal world. Okay. When you say paranormal world, you mean actual living people who are into it, not ghosts and aliens and other people. Correct. Yes. Yes. People who are into the paranormal. So, you know, just like, I mean, just like Comic-Con or anything else, there's, you know, there's different things for paranormal activity. Now that can be separated out. And I think it's important for us to do this for our listeners as I go on to explain the things I found out in Hellier. Um, I think it's important to understand that there are different types of paranormal, you know, there's obviously ghosts, right? Then you'll have mm-hmm. some people that believe that just religious experiences are paranormal. Then you have the Bigfoots or the Loch Ness Monsters or the, um, the Nightwalkers. You know, there's like a million possible different types of paranormal activity that you could be into. As it turns out, the people that are in this particular film, Dana and Greg Newark, Newkirk, excuse me, um, they, <laughs> they run... A lot. They do a lot of writing for Planet Weird. Okay. Um, they've become. I assume that's a website. Of, yeah. Uh, they also do a lot of writing for Weekend Weird, and these are websites that stream off into all of that. Mm-hmm. Every single type of paranormal thing that you can imagine, from aliens to ghosts to Bigfoot to whatever, they're all in on all of it. So as I begin watching the documentary, um, it begins because he got an email at (laughs) I'm pulling it together he got an email at an old email address from someone who claimed to be from Kentucky and had this horrible experience with Kentucky goblins and he was just 100% certain that you know that he had talked to this guy back and forth and whatever whatever and they went to Kentucky and searched these goblins here is what I have determined because I cannot possibly get into all of what they do It it will make me insane I decided about halfway through season one that this documentary was not about what they thought it was about. Um, they have decided that they are on some type of quest, like Lord of the Rings style. Okay. And they're being guided by supernatural forces. There's like a tribal council of sorts that they, mm-hmm. you know, people, witches, and warlocks that are. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is this fiction or nonfiction? This is a fiction. This theory, is right? true. This okay. is true. This so is they're a document. This is actually, you know, that they're all that they're seriously investigating this. Okay. Yes. Yes. They all believe it. They're all in. Like they believe that they're participating in some kind of ritual. Meanwhile, okay. First of all, I need to explain to our listeners why it was so frustrating because 
there was a, there were specific times where you were like, oh, this can't be happening. First mm-hmm. of all, let's let's take this. We've got city kids. Okay, we're taking city kids. We're taking them out into the country, and we're not just the country, but we're taking them out in the mountains um, to the Appalachian Valleys and putting them out in the woods at night with no street lights and no flashlights, just their little goggles, you know, the ultralight cameras. And of course, they've got their um, in-house hedge witch with them who does spiritual rituals by lighting candles on the forest floor. <laughs> okay. There was someone, a giant blaze. Maybe it was yes, a fine. Like literally all I could think from that moment, from the time she's putting the candles down in the forest was like, the, they're going to burn the whole thing down. They're going to burn the forest down. You don't put candles on the ground in the forest city kids, but all right. So they're out in the forest, and now keep in mind, they have been studying everything from, well, we'll get into Mothman prophecies in a minute, but Mothman prophecies and studying about these Kentucky goblins and the history of the hauntings up and down the Appalachias. And so they have been scaring themselves to death for like four days talking about this. Now they're out in the middle of the woods, and it's dark, and they've got obviously the burning candles on the ground. And no other light. And so suddenly it's like every sound. What was that? Did you hear that? (laughs) There was wood knocking. Did you hear that knocking on the wood? I'm like, aw, they've never been out in the woods before. And you realize that they have scared themselves to death. Like they're terrified. They are legitimately afraid. But again, it's, it's a documentary that's about something different than what they think it's about. And so as I'm watching this kind of all unfold, it was, it was too much at one point, Jim, you know, anyone who's ever watched anything paranormal, they often have in parentheses, things that you can't necessarily hear or sounds or what have you. And at one point it said unexplained chirping. (sighs) If anyone is listening (laughs) from the show, I know the answer. Those were crickets. <laughs> I've got your. There are these small creatures in the woods. Yes, <laughs> yes, they're called crickets. Um, we are familiar with them. Yeah, so it like it was just random things like that initially, but it was very much a part of them winding themselves into the own their own story and getting into their own confirmation biases of the things they believe. And any tiny hint of something, they would then feel that it tied it back together. Like these are the real live conspiracy theory people. Like well, they're the ones who believe that like all the threads are connected and whatever. Like I went into this thinking this was going to be a, a fairly, you know, whatever paranormal show. And legitimately, I believe, because I do believe in paranormal activity. I believe that there are certain parts of the Appalachian Mountains, specifically near Mammoth Cave, that do have properties that generate higher types of this type of activity because there's a lot of quartz. There's a significant amount of quartz underneath certain parts of Kentucky, West Virginia, um, just, again, that kind of area. What word did you say there? Quartz? Quartz. 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 Like Q-U-A-R-T-Z. Quartz, like the rock. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. And quartz has been known. It actually has a lot of different properties as far as like um, electromagnetic properties. It causes people sometimes to have hallucinations. I mean, there's really legitimate things that can be tied to having that much quartz um, in and around an area. And it's usually linked to a lot of UFO sightings um, and things of that nature. 
So if you would, if this show had just been like, hey, we discovered that this was all built on course and that's why it's probably all connected and blah, 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 blah. They probably would have been able to like take me along for a ride. That's not where they wanted to go. They <laughs> clearly had decided early on that this was going to be one of those like more mission-based things. Mm-hmm. Um, now they get into pretty deep, like deep conspiracy theory, deep UFO I, I guess you would call it research, except for like it's all based on not real scientific information. They're basing their research on stories that were written by people like them. I, I was about to say, Mickey, this it sounds like they're pitching it as some people find some look into some crazy stuff. And what really is saying that what it, the show turned out to be was crazy people look into some stuff. Right. <laughs> I the found crazy, myself. The adjective was in the wrong place in that. Right. Sense. Yes. I feel like, I, I, and at this point, like I, I don't even care if I'm giving away spoilers. Um, here's the thing. I decided uh, definitely at the beginning of the second season because I watched two seasons for you people, so I could give you a full picture of all of it. Because <laughs> once I got, I was like, this is insanity. Um, but. I, I did watch two seasons, and once I realized I'm watching it, and I decided that my first thought when the first email came through was, someone's fucking with you. Like, one of your friends is fucking with you. I don't know which one it is, but to find them, and you'll know now how this has happened. And, you know, initially they tried to do the, like, well, we were skeptical, but then we did this research, and we were able to find it. Like, no, they didn't really do any real research. Like, they're not good at researching anything. They only can go back to things like, the Mothman prophecies or a book that they've read about some witness of a UFO. Like it's absolute insanity. And they use it as though like these are scientific texts. I I was going to say, Oh no. So one of the key points that they talk about is synchronicity. And in the first season specifically, they, um, you know, they had these emails coming in and they're going up to site and the dude was listening to the Mothman prophecies on the way up. Through the film, out, I assume, correct? With Richard no, Gere listening and all to the book. Listen, okay. sorry, audio, okay. audio book. Yeah, listening to the audio book of the Mothman prophecies. Um, and he was listening to that on location. Well, then throughout, he kept making references references back to the Mothman prophecies book. Good lord, my tongue today. And then at the end of like season one, he he literally says into the like, the confessional camera. And, you know, the Mothman prophecies, they just keep coming up. You can't ignore that. And I'm like, well, that's because you listen to the audio book and you keep bringing it up. Yes, it's, it's recognition bias or, or your confirmation bias, yes, right? You're, it was, you're it's, it's signs, nothing. Find signs, you know, you're, yes, that is exactly what this entire show is, is confirmation bias. And as I was starting to say is at the beginning of the second season, they got another email. And it was at that point that I decided the emails were coming from the producer. Now, I don't have any proof of this, but what I would tell you is that if I were their producer, I would send them emails because these idiots will run around and chase anything. Like, they, they, are, they will track a story till they find out that it's not true and then go back and act as though they didn't find out it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a reference they- point. It's it's confirmation it's it's the inverse of confirmation bias. Like any uh-huh. anything that doesn't uh, confirm what we're looking for, we're going to ignore or conveniently forget or downplay. Correct. Or, you know. Yes, and anything that works, then we're going to do it. And so, to me, it very much became almost a documentary about mass delusion mm. or group delusion. 
because you could see that they were feeding off of each other. Like when they would get into like they went into a tunnel and did some more stupid stuff um, with candles and whatnot. And again, I'm into this. I've seen people perform rituals that I thought were interesting or fascinating or brought something new to the table. That is not what these people did. And in fact, I feel <laughs> like there were a lot of these quote unquote sessions that they did with these, you know, there's something called a God helmet. And I've actually seen other people use it and been impressed with it. And I watched these people use it and thought frauds. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, it's, it's really interesting to me because they're very well respected within the paranormal community. They have this particular show has been unbelievably well received um, by the paranormal community. And again, they're exceptionally well respected. And it makes me curious, I guess, because these are, like I said, these are people that now believe that they're on some type of quest being guided by a group of higher power witches or warlocks of some kind to perform a ritual. And ultimately the end of season one was kind of like, Oh, there might not be goblins. There might be goblins. I don't know, but it's bigger than that kind of thing. Mm. And then at the end of season two, I'm going to give you a huge spoiler alert here. These millennial ghost hunters discovered pan. You might also know him as puck. Um, but Pan was brought and touched on very, very heavily um, in obviously Greek mythology and, and other mythology of that nature, but also True Blood. So okay. um, Pan is the god of nature, and he was a hidden god. He was the only god to ever die and um, ever be cast out of Olympus and actually die. And so Pan is a god that is often tied to the occult for many reasons. Um, but again, made a pretty significant appearance in, I think it was like True Blood season maybe seven. Also, wasn't he also like, he was a satyr or something? He was one of those yes. things, like he was, yes. he was one of the fun doing it in the forest type guy, you know. Like guy. I said, yes, he was also Puck. Um, yeah. Puck is based on him as well, yeah. Um, so any type of like that sprite-like natural creature, that's, that's the pan god. Well, again, these millennial ghost hunters acted as though they discovered Pan. Ah. As though no one else had ever, like, made the connection between Pan and other things. And I'm like, this this is insane. Uh, it was a lot. And it, it was, like I think it was... idiots, you're saying. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, it, it was a lot to take in because, again, then I was like, and you watched it because you're an idiot. Um, but I was like, no, I'm doing this for my people. So, because I wanted to, I, I wanted to like it. I wanted them to find something or show me something that stretched my imagination and made me think of the paranormal differently. That is not what happened here. Um, and in fact, the fact that I guarantee you, they probably already filmed the third season and they're going to continue to, you know, cash checks out of this. Good for them. Can't complain about the fact that they're making money off the situation. But at the same time, I... I'll be curious to hear what some of you have to say about it because having seen actual rituals performed before and seeing people who actually know what they're doing out there investigate and then watching these people do it made me really uncomfortable at times. I'm going to say, everyone, there's nothing worse than an amateur occultist as opposed to the professional. <laughs> well, but you know what I mean? Like, it was just... And, and like I said, they're meeting with people secretly in hotel rooms and making these phone calls and you know we're really scared and again when they started to freak each other out that's when you realize like they've isolated themselves pretty good here 
And so, again, if I'm the producer, if I'm the director, man, do I have, like, nothing but clay to work with. <laughs> so... I was about to say, like, you know... Uh... Uh, you know, when you know, Mickey, next time you feel like you have to watch something on behalf of all of us, <laughs> you may not need to. It's okay to turn off the TV, it's okay. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, I knew you weren't gonna do it, and I thought, I like the paranormal, I can do this, I can do this. And again, it was trending forever in my Twitter feed, and so I mm-hmm. thought, surely this is something I should check out. And I'm gonna be really curious, like I said, to hear back from fr- some of our friends who I know are very much into the paranormal and how much they liked it or did not like it, and how much they believed or did not believe of it. All right, well, I say so. I will not be watching that, Mickey. You have not persuaded me, I wouldn't. <laughs> Hellier sounds kind of hellacious to watch. <laughs> um, but you know, I will be watching, which is, what? you know, down the street and around the corner from that. Mickey, did you watch the, tra- did you see the trailer for the uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife? The, the movie Cannot called- wait. Right? Okay, so this is, you know, for, for, for background. This is um, a, a reboot of sorts. It is directed by Jason Reitman, who is the son of Ivan Reitman, uh, who was the director of the original Ghostbusters. Uh, Jason Reitman did one of my all-time favorites, Thank You for Smoking, uh, based on the Christopher Buckley novel. And Reitman's, you know, the younger Reitman had kind of built his reputation of doing these kind of um, satirical, up up in the air was one of his, the George Clooney frequent flyer movie and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But he's now taking the torch from his dad. And of course, this comes on, you know, a couple of years after what is frequently called Lady Ghostbusters. Uh, and I think most people, I think, I guess technically the title was Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Um, they I have no idea what the real name was. I just thought, it, I've always referred to it as Lady Ghostbusters. I yes. know that's not the real name. Did you ever end up watching it like on cable or anything like that, Mickey? Nope. Okay. It was pretty darn bad. Um, I realize this makes me a terrible male chauvinist for saying this, but I want to, I want to just take a, give you the real quick and dirty, ver- you know, first of all, most of these actresses have been much funnier in other material. Most notably, um, the Bachelor at Party movie, um, Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids, uh huh. Um, you know, it, it was one of those things where the opening trailer couldn't be clear about whether this was a reboot or a sequel. Mm. Uh, these, it, a lot of it, director Paul Feig let them pretty much improv as much as they wanted, and I think it shows. And it just didn't work. Wasn't focused. Um, celebrity cameos that are in there for like, first of all, Mickey, when was the last time you thought of Ozzy Osbourne? Mm. Right. Okay. So he's in this well after he had enjoyed his uh, career revival and the reality show. And he's in that saying, sure. And also it was just the most like shoehorned in who could we get on short notice to have a celebrity cameo? It, it was bad. I, I watched it one time just to say, well, I heard this was a controversial mm-hmm. movie. Let me see if it makes me laugh. And it didn't at all, Mickey. And that is why I didn't watch it. Right? So, um, nothing yeah. about it looked appealing. And I think that, it, you know, we're going to get into what I think that about that. Let's talk first about the good. Yeah. The so good like, is that this trailer, um, Ghostbusters Afterlife, is amazing. I mean, it drew me in almost in it almost immediately. And then you find out Paul Rudd's in it, and that pulls you even further in. And you realize that this kid is going to be the grandchild of one of the Ghostbusters. Yeah. So walking through, um, th- there's a theory that said, like, what made the original Ghostbusters so darn good was you had actors like Bill Murray, 
Dan Aykroyd, uh, Harold Ramis, uh, Rick Moranis in a supporting role, Sigourney, just a dynamite cast all at the top of their game. And let's not forget Ernie Hudson. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, you know, and, then, and by the way, a lot of people hate the sequel. I think the sequel is perfectly fine. It's not as good as the first one, but the first one was just, you know, lightning in a bottle. Um, it was lightning in a bottle, but I liked the second one and I liked the Bobby yeah. Brown song that went with it. There you go. And with, with a cameo by Donald Trump. Um, mm-hmm. Future president Donald Trump. Isn't <laughs> it just so weird to say? Anyway. It, he shows up in ago. everything from the 80s, though. Like, that's what's so funny is you watch any 80s movie and it's set in New York, guaranteed Trump's face shows up somewhere. Yeah. Um, but so, Sorry, go ahead. I apologize. Um, so I think the idea with that Lady Ghostbusters thing is, okay, let's find four more comedians put them in the same kind of thing and let them do their thing. And it just didn't work because, you know, no offense to the ladies, I don't think this was them at their best the way Ghostbusters was, you know, the big three and the supporting cast at their best, right? Mm-hmm. So for this one, they're scrapping that. It doesn't even take place in New York City as far as we can tell. It is a very different story. It is very very much like the Netflix series Stranger Things and not just because it has one of the kids from Stranger Things. Um, you know, you want to tell a scary ghost story? Tell it about kids. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's a, you know, the, 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 the sense of, oh, this is interesting. This it's is viable. It's dramatic, right? You know? Um, mm-hmm. And you're right. Paul Rudd is in it, but it is not Paul Rudd mm-hmm. trying to be one of the, the roles of the original guy. He's the science teacher, it looks like. Uh, yeah. You know, another he, he seems character. to be the one. He, yes, he seems to be the science teacher who reconnects the grandson with his, his history, so to speak. Yeah. Um, uh, and it just looks really good. Yeah. So it is, you know, it looks like a, a bunch of kids finding the old ghost uh, uh, equipment, not knowing who their grandfather was and kind of gradually exploring this in this small town. And it looks like either Oklahoma or, you know, North Texas, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. Um, so that looks terrific. Bunch of big uh, trailers came out just in the last week. My guess is Mickey. I think this is all because they want all want to put him in front of Star Wars. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. All right, so because you know it feels like all the summer. Oh, yeah, they yeah they want those trailers to be in front of Star Wars. Okay, uh, did you catch Wonder Woman 1984? Yes. What do you think? I I liked the first Wonder Woman, so I'm excited to see what they do with this. I just hope that it doesn't go down a path I'm not comfortable with. Okay, so I have heard a, a spoiler rumor that I'm not going to share with you. Okay. Um, but it ba- the the spoiler rumor made the plot sound really terrible. Um, like really, what were they thinking with that? Mm-hmm. So I, I had gone into this and like, like you, I had enjoyed, uh, the first one. Um, the missus is a big fan of wonder woman. I thought like, you know, I, I went into it and say, okay, let's see it. And you know, uh, my sons enjoyed it, you know, did feel a little bit different from the typical superhero movie. Let's also observe that I think Gail Godot is an actual goddess, uh, from some other land like Israel. She is and, so uh, hot. Right. Is ridiculous. She's, she's hot, she but she's smoking. also like she, you just she's feels cute up and like well she's your perfect girl basically yeah. but like she's cute and she's likable and but she's sexy and she's strong like she's just awesome right so you know so she goes so but so i went into this hearing like oh god don't let that you know plot rumor be true i hate to tell you this nothing i saw in that trailer contradicted the plot rumor but it also still looked awesome and so maybe they will pull it off maybe this will actually work out uh, a lot of it shot around here in dc uh mickey I used to live, yeah, I can reveal it now, what, what, what I used to call Yuppie Acres was Alexandria um, in Virginia, and it was, uh, it, we lived down the street from a mall called Landmark Mall, 
And mm-hmm. that is, in fact, where all of the mall scenes you see in this trailer were filmed. And Mickey, if you needed a mall where it looked like nothing had changed since the 1980s, Landmark Mall was that. <laughs> well, and you know what? Sometimes they do need that. So perfect. Yeah, Good no, usage. So it, it is, you know, by the way, I believe Landmark Mall is now shut down since the, since they filmed there. That's how bad things were at that mall for a while. But that looks good. Uh, did you catch the Black Widow trailer? I caught part of it, um, but I haven't seen the whole trailer, so bad on me. I was busy watching, you know, Hellier for like 15 hours. That's what, yeah, um, time well So spent. I couldn't take the three minutes to watch the entire trailer, but I have heard that it's very Russia-centric. Yes, it does look like that. Uh, the secret, I think, that Hollywood has figured out is if you want your summer movie to be good, get a cast member from Stranger Things on there. Um, <laughs> Hopper's in this one, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, spoiler for the last... Okay, uh, Black Widow was a character where you're like, huh, I would figure we might have seen a solo film for her earlier. This does look very heavy on these spies and espionage and all that stuff, which is right up my alley. Um, looks good. You know, it's Marvel. I, as we said earlier in this podcast, I have... Marvel has earned my trust. You go in an st- unusual direction, I'm going with you. Uh, because I just, The irony, the only trailer that I thought I, that came out last week that I thought was just merely okay. Uh, did you catch the James Bond trailer? Yes. And I. here's the thing. I, I, I've told you guys this before. I'm not a big James Bond fan. Like, I don't make an effort mm-hmm. to watch the 007 movies. So, I, to me, it was just kind of lukewarm. But I, I don't know how the, you know, super fans would feel. Yeah, no, I, I think I'd agree with that, that. Nothing about it looked wrong. Nothing about it looked all that surprising. And I say this as a guy who, who I, I would say like the, the Bond movie that I have enjoyed most recently was like the first two thirds of Casino Royale, mm. which was which was supposed to be kind of the prequel or origin story. Yeah. Where he's not, you know, there was the first one with uh uh, it was kind of kind of establishing the idea that this is not the James. That Bond. was the new Daniel Craig. Series. Yeah, the first da- first Daniel Craig effort, and the whole gist of that one was that he wasn't quote unquote James Bond yet, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't care about his martinis. He was a little rougher around the edges, and as a result of that, it was okay for him to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and I say this, you know, loving the icons and the, the image and all that kind of stuff, but in the end, James Bond is a little too perfect. Things come. A little too easily for him. He, you know, that that image of Pierce Brosnan straightening his tie during the uh, uh, tank chase in, yes. in Goldeneye, right? Um, by the way, it's worth noting: almost every new actor is every, every time they introduce a new actor, that first film is really good, and then usually there's kind of a slow descent, uh, movie by movie, with all these things. So my theory, Mickey, would be to always recast James Bond with every single movie. <laughs> That's not right? a bad idea, right? And maybe, so or maybe only make three. Oh, I, like, I, and commit to like want. a trilogy, like say these are the three stories we're going to tell. You want a Tom Hiddleston one? You do Tom Hiddleston. You want uh, right. you go you and McGregor. You want um, what's his name? Uh, the African actor, Idris Elba. Idris Elba, right? <laughs> you know, I'm saying African American. He's British. Pardon me. You know, exactly. Um, you know, all you know, give give everybody a shot, right? And let's just let everybody and and make it so good. It would, <sighs> it would each one of them into an event. Right? Uh-huh. You, you wouldn't be able to watch, you know, like, you got to watch this one because Idris Elba's not going to be in the next one, you know, so. If you say uh-huh. so. Again, because I'm not, like, a huge fan of that genre, even, um, they, because I yeah. feel like, and, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like, and you know me, I love mysteries and I love thrillers, but a lot of this 
spy quote unquote movies like the Bond movies and others. Those aren't really like thrillers. They're just straight up like action and titty movies. Yeah, I, you know, th- again, that there's there's always going to be a scene. Like, there's so many things that are now required to be part of a James Bond film, right? Mm-hmm. The pre-credit sequence, Bond, James Bond, shaken not stirred. Um, at least one chase, usually a couple of different chases. You've got to hop from at least one location to another. It's like a checklist. Right. And it's very tough to make these, you know, M's going to yell at them. You know, Q shows in the gadgets. That it, It's kind of gotten formulaic to the point where it, it's just tough to, you know, there, there's going to be nothing surprising in it. And that was kind of my attitude actually towards the last couple of James Bond films. And looking at this trailer... Up, uh, oh, okay. Here are the actresses they got into this one. Up, oh, here's the actor they got to and play. The call film. me crazy, okay? But like, why not take a Brad Thor novel and do this? Uh, I, I would completely agree, and, and also like, because then you're actually updating everything—the story, yeah. the hero, like the situations that take place—and it's much more rooted in real reality. Whereas, like James Bond, much like what we were talking about earlier, okay, boomer, was very much a part of that whole 50s, 60s, 70s culture mm-hmm. of the man who straightens his bow tie, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's this, um, there's so much male fantasy wrapped up in James Bond. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, that's fun the cars, the babes, the gadgets, all that kind of stuff that you kind of wonder if it gets in the way of telling a good story. And you can tell with so many of these, they've been trying to tell a good story. And it, you know, like when you know you have to introduce Blo- uh, Blofeld's in this one. Okay, well, we know the bad guy's going to be Blofeld. You know, like, right. <laughs> you know, like, like, also, by the way, like why, why, did Austin, why was Austin Powers so funny? Because we'd all seen this movie a million times, right? And we were ready right. to be made fun of. And, you know, the, um, all the exaggerations and, the, and all that kind of stuff. So, like, it, again... Uh, you know, I, why are they going to make James Bond movies? Because they've been making James Bond movies, you know, every couple of years and all that stuff. I, I think there are ways you could... Uh, the, other, the other idea, which I remember somebody floating, which struck me as a great idea. So assume... Because, you know, the, the weird thing is they've seen, like, Judy Dench playing M with two different Bonds. Mm-hmm. And he gets younger, but time has passed and she's older. And all these mm-hmm. ways, which, the, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense. Um, they have you know, props from the previous ones in the background of one of the... You know, all kind of stuff. So here's the thing. James Bond does not exist. Right. James Bond 007 is the cover identity of whoever the best agent in MI6 is at any given year. Mm-hmm. So you do a scene, you make a movie with as many living Bond actors as possible. Mm. So you br- if, if you can bring back Connery, you do that. If you can't, you bring back Dalton, you bring back Bosnan, and they're all retired people who have assumed the identity of James Bond. Oh, I love this. I love. I would have loved it better ten years ago when Sean yeah. Connery would have been better. Yeah, well, there you go, right? You know, because you were up scallion. You know how I feel about him. That's different. That has yeah, nothing millennial. to do with the whole James Bond thing. Don't you dare say "Okay, Boomer" to me. <laughs> um, but, and so the idea is that that would be our way of explaining how all these movies are, and the idea of why are the James Bonds always tortured, and you know, because here's the other thing: if you are betting one gorgeous woman after another. And every villain you fight happens to have a hot henchwoman who instantly is overcome by your, you know, uh-huh. stiff upper lip, I guess, or other <laughs> stiff things. Um, you know, and you're drinking your martinis, and you're driving the best cars, and you have in your your finest clothes, all that kind of stuff. Like James Bond has the happiest life any man on earth could or should have, and he always seems miserable. 
right? Or at least certainly in the you know in, in the he's last. He's very couple. dour. He's not. Right? Yes, he's definitely not someone who I would consider like a happy person. These bitter little quips, whereas you know, like literally, he's got a license to kill. Wouldn't that make you happy, Mickey? I shouldn't. Yeah. No, don't answer that. Um, yeah, I was like, oh yeah, no, um, right. I don't know how I feel about that, Jim. So you know, the the idea you know, again, you know, the the irony is you have this you know this bitterness in you know of the character. Um, and he's always losing his, you know, there was a comedian who did this great routine about how, so what, what happens in every James Bond movie? He meets a woman, he has sex with a woman and she dies, usually in an explosion. Mm-hmm. This is the most extreme form of birth control anyone has ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I am now going to pull you in a different direction All right. because one of the things that we mentioned earlier was Lady Ghostbusters and mm-hmm. there was another trailer in a movie that came out afterwards. And I don't think. Nearly as many people saw the movie as probably saw the trailer, but there's been a lot of controversy around it. And that, of course, is the latest Charlie's Angels reboot. Yes. And I, yeah, so I wanted to run that one by you because she's been out very outspoken about this. Elizabeth Banks, mm-hmm. she was the director and producer on this one. Yes. This was entirely and, her baby, so to speak. Yes. And so go ahead. I'll let you well, Okay. So I, I, I too had seen the trailer. Um, the uh, Mrs. Campaign spot, see, like her eyebrow raised a little bit, but at, at the more we watched that, the, the, the trailer ca- you know, continued. Um, we were both kind of left with this strange question of who is this movie for? Because look, you know, for those you know, 1970s series, which was the perfect having your cake and eat it too, because it was about you know empowered women who were kicking butt and kicking crime, and usually the men, the the the, the criminals that they were fighting were were men. But there were three exceptionally hot actresses of the 1970s, yes. usually wearing skimpy clothes. And then the reboot in the, was it late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, I guess 90s, 2000s, right? somewhere around there. Yeah, you know, with Drew uh, Barrymore. Lucy Liu and uh-huh. uh, Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz, like leaned into it even more, right? Mm-hmm. Of being like ridiculous cheesecake, ridiculous outfits, and over the top wire, you know, matrixy wire stunts and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, and super fun. And right? they yeah, even got like, Demi Moore involved in the sequel. Absolutely no illusions of what it was, what it was trying mm-hmm. to be, or what was offering. And everyone seemed to enjoy themselves with that, right? Yeah, I know well, that the comes... first one was a box office hit, and yeah. I would assume that the second one did okay as well. Yeah, I remember there was, it had been talk of giving Demi Moore a spinoff of her own series, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so along comes this one featuring the gal from the Twilight series. Kristen Stewart. Thank you. Um, and then two other actresses who I did not recognize who are, you know, maybe I'm aging out of the demographic for this, but who I don't know from Adam. Attractive enough, but this is clearly a movie that's offering zero cheesecake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess okay enough action sequences, I guess. But like what was supposed to be the quasi-feminist or updated Charlie, like the le- the result was when you took out the things that made Charlie's Angels, Charlie's Angels, mm-hmm. what was left? And I believe this is one of the big box office bombs of the year. And I, if the idea was, well, the old one was kind of male chauvinist and kind of objectified the women, they created something that clearly men didn't like, but it also appears women did not come out in droves to see this movie either. Well, she seems to be complaining and suggesting that the reason that people didn't like the movie was because they couldn't handle female leads in an action role. And I think that Alien, Aliens, um, Alien right. Resurrection, yeah, the, yeah. Um, the litany of other Charlie's Angels movies that did well. <laughs> um, I think Captain Marvel might have something to say about this. Maybe Wonder Woman. 
I'm just saying that this is, again, it's like the first story that we talked about. Everything's in a circle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you come back to this and people, you know, they come up with the reasons that they're being oppressed and, and that, you know, people are out to get them in reality. It's like, well, maybe you just put out a crappy product. I was going to say, and, and it's, you know, first of all, keep in mind, filmmakers, I remember early on we were talking about with Martin Scorsese where if I go out to a movie, it's it's a commitment, right? May I have to get a may I have to get a babysitter, got to pay for parking, want to get popcorn and a soda, all that kind of stuff. You're asking people to come in. And now ticket prices are minimum 10 bucks for a, a matinee. And now we're getting up to 15, 20 bucks for, you know, particularly if you want to do 3D or all, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you're asking the audience to commit a considerable amount. So you'd better give them your very best, right? This is not, you know, don't, 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 you know, don't, don't sleepwalk through any of this stuff and you're giving us action. Okay. Well, we get an action movie every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, I mean, it, it may have been, you know, at that time when, when the old one came out, I say the old one, I guess now the middle one, uh, Cameron <laughs> Diaz was at her, you know, apex of her stardom, right? Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. was still pretty big and Lucy Liu was considered like the third one and not as famous as the other, but that was still three big, big names, right? Lucy yes, Liu because she was hot off of Ali. the Kill Bill. Oh yeah. Wait, Kill, oh, that's right. Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had been doing a bunch of movies and stuff and she had no, you know, when you yeah. did a hot Asian actresses, you know, Lucy Liu was there on speed dial. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so, and you right. had a lot of other celebrity cameos and I guess this one had Patrick Stewart here and there, but it was just kind of like, you know, wasn't it like, wasn't Bill Murray in it at one point? Yes. Bill Murray right? I mean, was, was one of them. Oh, I don't know. They had Bruce Willis mm-hmm. making a cameo in a movie that starred Demi Moore, which obviously got, you know, audiences kind of chuckling, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, they did a lot of really cute tongue-in-cheek things from one of, like, LL Cool J pulling off his face and it being someone else. And, like, yeah. there were just some amazing moments. And so, like, okay. now again, is this brilliant cinematic cinematic masterpiece? No, probably not. But you know, you, again, the audience knew what they were going to go into. They were going to get some laughs. They were going to get some, you know, uh, <laughs> probably some memorable visuals that they go back and watch later. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, and the and women in the audience would have a good time. Like, it, there, there was a sense of fun to it all, and there was really almost nothing in this new reboot that screamed fun. And I guess that's the first thing is like. How, how seriously do you want the audience to take a Charlie's Angels reboot? Well, and if you wanted to make a movie about three women assassins or three women crime fighters, you didn't have to make it a Charlie's Angels movie. Right, yeah. I don't know how many times I have to tell people this. Like, it's like the James Bond thing and everything else. It's like, make a new movie. Come up with another storyline. There are literally millions of books out there. Yeah. Dying to be a, interpreted. Yeah. I would say call them a dangerous trio, but that's getting a little bit close. So there you go. Very nice. Um, yes. So actually, you know who needed to be in this movie, Mickey? <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. Aw, well, you know, we haven't talked about her for a minute, and I know that you and I are going to try to do another show before Christmas. But just in case we we don't get to it in time, we do want to let you know what <laughs> Gwyneth is planning on getting herself for Christmas this year. I, I'm sure our audience is shaking in anticipation, Mickey. Yes, she has released a ad for Goop and, of course, all of the ridiculous products in which she purchases a vibrator for herself and gifts herself that for Christmas. Merry Christmas, Gwyneth. I, I suppose it is indeed, Mickey, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> hey, at least it wasn't a Peloton bike. Better than a subscription to wine. Yeah. 
Um, yes, it is the gift that we'll keep on giving throughout the year. Um, and so obviously we you know, had to give a little shout out to Gwyneth. I need you to understand, though, if any of those show up wrapped up underneath my tree, there's going to be a fight. <laughs> yeah. So, by the way, like going back to the, the early days of this podcast, we've been making fun of Gwyneth Paltrow and mm-hmm. Goop seemed like the most ridiculous thing we could ever possibly imagine. And yet here we are. It is December 2019 and Goop is still around and apparently thriving, right? Exceptional. It's doing, it's growing, it's getting bigger and like the corporation's getting much larger. They're expanding and doing seminars and magazines and all kinds of crazy things. And this, as we've discussed many times, this is a lifestyle brand and people most definitely buy into it. Is they, it... So, so what you and I, okay, let's, let's try to, you know, uh, we, you and I could, you know, bat around with Paltrow all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're already running long on this podcast, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, like, so the people who are buying goop, what, what, what is that brand identity? Is it, I am wealthy and experimental. Is it like creativity? Is it? I, okay, look, obviously I don't actually have access to the demographic information at my fingertips like I used to, um, which I miss terribly. But what I do think is that their target audience appears to be very upper, upper middle class Mm. white women um, who primarily do not work, who primarily focus on going to like yoga and the club. (laughs) Yeah, like taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the people who okay, actually right, have so the, the time right. you talked about this earlier being a parent like it's either time right or mm-hmm. you either have capital of time or money and these are women who have both all right so mickey i had not planned on going in this direction this is why you listen to the podcast you never know when we're going to audible <laughs> go in an unexpected direction is the typical goop product buyer the peloton bike woman <gasps> yes Right? I mean, you know, you know, so, and since we didn't, you and I actually have not discussed this. No. Bike, which apparently just dominate, like, was the single most important news story. You know, it was practically a baby Yoda. That's what's, you know, how big <laughs> it was. Um, so, overreaction, underreaction, just right. Was the ad really this, you know, weird, semi abusive relation? You know, the actor went on Good Morning America and said he's never going to get his reputation back. Um, I mean, I, I just know corner, I did a corner post saying, look, maybe it's just a bad ad people. And, you know, and we'll get to Ryan Reynolds in a second. But you know, yes, we'll, like- I was going to say the best part of this, of course, is what Aviation Gin did. However, um, look, the Peloton ads have always been annoying mm-hmm. long before this couple was introduced. I do think that there were a lot of people who read it as he was basically telling her she needed to lose weight mm-hmm. and that she felt like she needed to lose weight in order to, you know, maintain her man. And that was what a lot of people got from it. I, you know what, I I don't read that much into these things, I guess, because I know what, they're just trying to sell you an ad. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, so I I was not as offended as everyone else. I I was amused. Like, certainly I could see why that was taken that way. And then I found it funny and it's okay to make fun of people being dumb about the way they put together their ad. You can encapsulate everything about that ad with that one shot where she's doing a selfie or, or taping a live video the first time she gets on the ad. And her face is just contorted in something resembling abject terror. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know. She's like, okay, first day, here we go. You know, 
And if I'm the director of that, I'm like, wait, cut, cut. And you say to the actress, you know, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not projecting enthusiasm. No. Not, and you know, I, I think she was trying to project anxiety. Yeah. Like, but you, that was not yeah, how it came right. across. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, now to, to follow that up, for those of you who are not familiar, Ryan Reynolds has a gin company called Aviation Gin. He immediately went and hired the Peloton wife actress to do an ad that is basically her hanging out with her friends in a bar drinking a gin martini. And it popped up on a Friday evening right as we needed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was hilarious. And it's interesting because, by the way, so all of the entire national controversy was driven by Allah Pundit of Hot Air, mm-hmm. who wrote like one or two lighthearted posts about, you know, clearly this is an abusive relationship. Someone please dial 911. <laughs> get into a shelter. The last time that woman had a snack, he locked her in the basement for two months. You know, like all the kind of, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know funny, dark interpretation of it. And like I said, this is just, there's just a weird, is the weirdest vibe to an ad since um, Trivago guy. Okay. Yes. He's a little right. creepy, he, as we know. Shame, doesn't wear a belt and just look like, oh, we're taping the commercial today. Oh, geez. All right. Well, let's go. You know. Yeah. Well, and again, I... I I think they were going for the idea of, you know, giving Peloton its love. And people saw that as Peloton wants you to think that you're fat and no one will love you unless right? you work out on Peloton. I mean, like, w- would some of it be, you know, you know, yeah, it's, you know, it's a lot for a bike, but honey, you deserve it. Right. right. Like that idea. Yes. yes. Like you're worth it. Right. That's the kind of, you know. Yes. That's what they were probably going for. However... That is not at all how it came across. And unfortunately, there was people then led to even further interpretation as far as, you know, who wrote the script and why was the woman so excited when the man who was teaching her soul cycle class or whatever pointed her out and said she did a good job. And yeah, you know, people got real freaked out by things that I think they were way overthinking. the, the, The other weird line is I had no idea how much this was going to change me. You know, and she's watching the video over here, and she looks the same. Now, of course, it's because they probably all taped it in one day. Right. But if, if, if uh, like, that's where you go to the script and say, mm, okay, let's change that a little bit. Or, you know, this yeah, is like, so I just feel so much or something. better or something like I that. I feel yeah. so good about myself. None of this, this has changed me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. This so, has changed uh, me, but we can't decide if that's for the good or the bad or the ugly. Uh, now here we are. We probably should be approaching wrap up as we are nearing the hour, the, nearing the ninety minute point. Oh, uh, wow. It's the holiday yes. season. Um, Christmas is coming. Any thoughts on Hallmark movies, Rudolph special, anything like that? Well, obviously the Rudolph special was on a couple of weeks ago. I know that it was on because the minute someone mentioned it, I drag you into the conversation, and then you give them a lecture. Well, okay, I don't aim to do a lecture, but I, look, I, I you explain I, it to them in a way that they can understand it, which I think is important because I agree with you, but I feel like you put it in a way that is so much more eloquent than I could. Sure. So, look, this is the this is the stop motion one that airs every year. I think it's on CBS, and you know, every, everyone's joked, "Oh my goodness, you know, Herbie wants to be a." Di-. It's a weird Christmas special, and I, and I was thinking about this, and the point I didn't get to make in my various Twitter, you know, diatribes that night, Mickey. <laughs> So you and I are around the same age. Like during the mm-hmm. '80s, there were Christmas specials for just about every Saturday morning cartoon and you know comic strip and, and you know 
there, there were tons of them, right? I'm sure there's probably a Voltron Christmas special or something like that, right? And we remember none of those. Mm-hmm. But this one we remember, and this one they choose to show year after year, and this is one where everybody has a strong opinion about it because it's mostly about social ostracization. <laughs> and, it, yeah. and it and it kind of makes Santa one of the villains, right? That, which is such a weird you know, story to tell. And, it's very weird, and it, again, we, we're also to assume that after all this happens that Rudolph is just like, oh, okay, yeah, we're good now. Right. I mean, he gets he gets a promotion into the system and then he keeps the regime in place. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, one of our most infamous <laughs> podcasts talking about, you know, Nazi Santa and all of that. stuff. <laughs> but the idea that, look, because there's an island of misfit toys, Santa, whose elves create the toys. Right. And mm-hmm. we know these creatures are sentient. We know they are alive. Right. You know, but the moment they realize that they are genetically defective. They are exiled, right? It's I mean, like it's Europe. A genetic purity regime to a concentration camp slash island of misfit toys. <laughs> Jim. Yes. I feel like you should write a letter to, I think it's CBS that shares this every year. And at the beginning of it, they should have to explain themselves. Like well, with one of those little, you know, like a disclaimer. Right. We've been making fun of the PC crowd this entire time, but this is where I get woke, right? This yeah. Is where... <laughs> yeah. King Moonracer is is you know look he he has a perfect base for them to launch an insurgency. You know, Yukon Cornelius, look, we know you're armed. We know mm-hmm. your survival skills. You should be leading the insurrection. We should be seeking to topple the Santa regime and then create a truth and reconciliation commission to establish just how many toys have been sent off, you know. Um, <laughs> right? Look, that entire movie. Okay, you know, language warning. We try to keep it clean, but I know Mickey let one or two bad words through here. Santa is an asshole through that whole story, right? He really is not a good person. Like- and the Dad is an asshole, and all the other reindeer are assholes. Every, everyone is a dick, and I'm not sure at all. Like the only one who isn't a dick is Clarice. Like right? that's it. And she, you know, she quickly gets you know uh, smacked down for having that position. But the, oh yeah, top to bottom, this inside, entire society has made very clear that if you are you know de- deviant in any way from from what we have designed, the we will literally drive you out of society, right? You know, okay, take it one step further. What if it's actually about, like, if you can't be part of the workforce? Yeah, right? Okay. Right? Like, if you can't be a productive be. member of society, we don't want you. But remember, they don't want even Herbie to be a, a dentist, right? So, I mean, it's not Why just Why couldn't he workforce. be an elf dentist anyway? Right, I mean, well, let's take a look at those teeth of those elves. <laughs> you know? I, yeah, I mean, they eat a lot of sugar and stuff, so, you and know. They- Sit around and sing this song and about the joy of working for the dear leader. It's very North Korean. <laughs> it is frozen Pyongyang of Horatio. Oh, <laughs> right now, can we discuss still- this? Yeah. Can we discuss the fact that the best character in the entire thing is Burl Ives? Yeah, the well, snowman. I don't know, because don't you think he should, or he's like, you know, boy, they were pretty mean to dear old Rudolph. No, they drove He seems, like, but again, he seems like he may have been, like, hitting the peace pipe slightly before telling this story. <laughs> like, just saying that he has a little bit of that bong hit left in him. That's true. As he, he tells the story. Yes, yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. um, he's very laid back in, too. All right, so... 
uh, Mickey, the abominable snowman. Do we ever see any other of his species? In the movie? Correct. I don't think so. No, huh? So he's an endangered species. Oh, <gasps> and, and he took his teeth. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, this is where I get no. I, somebody, here's, because this so clearly was written by someone who wanted to go to dental school and wasn't allowed to. I know that you think this is the entire theory, by the way. Well, is, it, it, clearly this was written by somebody who, like, hey, uh, uh, you know, uh, Schmenkins, your your job is to write a Christmas special. He doesn't want to write a children's Christmas special. So I'm going to make this a parable about acceptance. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's ex- well, again, that's a very 60s thing, very 50s, 60s thing, is that, like, everything was about not all different people are bad. So it's yeah. very similar to what we get now pushed through our media it's just that then it was done through the x-men and rudolph yeah and i kept waiting for you know rudolph to form this you know x-men paramilitary squad <laughs> to take down the genosha of santa um but you just observe you know, so yeah so it's weird it's all the weirdness is what makes it timeless and what makes it stand out and makes it so memorable um Mickey, you are a delightful specimen of the female half of the species. Am I correct that you don't make Mr. Bias watch Hallmark Christmas movies? I don't make him, but I can't say that he hasn't accidentally been forced to watch it because I had control of the remote. Um, <laughs> but we do, we do watch Chris, we do watch some of the Hallmark Christmas movies in this house. Um, and while I tend to be on the regular, if I'm watching anything on the Hallmark Channel, it's usually on their Movies Mysteries channel. They've got, you know, Murder and Mystery. Yeah, channel. it's a whole spinoff one. You know, by the way, yes. also in that one, Candace Cameron also investigating all of them. Yes, investigating yeah. everything. Um, but, yes, we do watch them here. And it's interesting to me because it's, you know, it's, it's become such a cultural thing. And I think our friend Mary Catherine Hamm was maybe one of the first people to really break it down. And she wrote a fabulous piece at the Federalist a couple years ago. And I think she created a bingo card too, if you want to have fun with that. If you're forced to watch this by your spouse, this is what you... Uh... Oh, and it's just spectacular. And and again, she breaks down how, you know, the formula goes, there's either, you know, you're coming home for Christmas because you've been away for a long time, or you're running into a high school friend. Like there's all kinds of meat cutes that are all part of the Hallmark yep. tropes. And she goes through all of those. And yeah, all of that is true. But if you want to sit down and for two hours just kind of relax and enjoy a movie, this is the thing for you to watch because the most annoying things about these movies are the commercials. Yeah. Um, Commercial breaks have gotten longer. Not that I'm being forced to watch these by Mrs. Right, (laughs) but they have gotten longer. But I do believe that these are the kind of stories that people can sit down and watch, whether it be by themselves, while they're rapping with their kids, just putting it on in the background. And they know, one, it's not going to be anything offensive, right? And it's all very Christmassy themed, and everybody gets a happy ending, and voila. Um, Somebody observed on Twitter, you never see a character raise their voice in these movies. Correct. Right. The moment of supreme conflict, right, where the misunderstanding of, oh, you don't understand my spouse was run over by a reindeer or whatever, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the contrived confusion or conflict is, it's always a, I'm just disappointed you feel that way, Susan. And then she kind of, you know, plop, 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 walks away. Know, yes. Right. And she has to chase them out into the, you know, mm-hmm. down yeah, to they the don't, they don't yell. where they've restored the Christmas, I don't know, all kind of stuff. Yes, they don't have fights. They're only disappointed, really. Yeah, and and it's just a question of like, will they miss their chance at love? You know, that, mm-hmm. 
Um, so I, I've come up with one because I am forced to watch these. <laughs> Great. I have, I have got to, I'm going to pitch it to you right now, Mickey. Okay? okay. All right. So, you know, once again, you know, it's a classic romance. We meet our, our protagonist name. Who's what's the name of the protagonist, Mickey? Holly. Chris? Oh, Holly. Right? It's always okay. I, I've, I've chosen. I was going to go with Chris, like Chris Kringle, but it's Holly is Chris, good. Ivy, they're, yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, Noel. Yeah. So Holly is a harried working mom from the big city. Mm-hmm. She's separated from her husband. <laughs> Things didn't work out, but she started, you know, there's a guy in the office, and of course he's the wrong guy, right? You know, he's slick, he's business, he doesn't have any of that Christmas spirit, right? His name is Ellis. Okay, and, and Ellis is hitting on her, and Holly's boss asks her to organize the big office Christmas party. So mm-hmm. here's our contrive, you know. So now all of a sudden she's got to organize it at the um, Nakatomi Corporation. Okay, <laughs> and uh, Mr. Takagi asks uh, Holly to organize it, and who shows up at the party but John, the estranged husband? Oh says, my God! <laughs> and. So it's looking like a very normal Hallmark Christmas movie from the first half hour, 40 minutes or so. And then when the terrorists come in, Mickey. Uh-huh. Nope. And then when the terrorists show up. Yes. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. But we do get a happy ending. Of course. When when Hans gets thrown off the building. You know? yeah, yes, that too. But I was thinking of them, you know, kissing in the back of the cop car. They do that, but also my my thing be at some point like you know I might tweak it a little to have the kids around because all of the Hallmark movies have to have some cute kid around. Oh yeah, there's always either like a niece or a nephew or a stepkid and or something. The idea is that you know I, I, you told me I'd see reindeer fly tonight, and he'd say, "Well, you may not get to see reindeer fly tonight, kid, but how about Hans?" And then Hans goes off the building and all that stuff. I like it now. In in this new version of I guess we're gonna call it Die Hard, the Christmas movie. Um, you know, more like Holly's special night. <laughs> Holly's special, like, ho- Holly's you know, holiday. Totally. Holly's holiday explosion. Yeah. Christmas mm-hmm. in Holland. <laughs> you have problems, Jim Carrey. That's all I'm saying. Well, we are coming to what I believe is now way over our 90 minutes and by far the longest show we've ever put together for y'all. But I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. One of the things um, that Jim and I will be doing in the next couple weeks is making a little guest appearance on Play Like a Jet podcast, discussing the upcoming Steelers and Jets game. So please do look out for that. You can always find us. Um, I'm at Biased Girl. He is at Jim Garrity on Twitter, and um, we're both on Facebook as well. You can also find our webpage there for the Jim and Mickey show. Also, anytime you're writing to us, use hashtag TJAMS, T-J-A-M-S, and that's an easy way for everybody to find the conversations. Um, We are going to try to get back to you before Christmas, but as you know, our schedules can get a little bit crazy. So in the event that we do not want to wish you a very happy holiday and wishing you a very Merry Christmas, a happy Hanukkah, and a very blessed new year. I am Mickey White. He is Jim Garrity. And you've been listening to the one, the only Jim and Mickey show.